Welcome, everybody, to a brand-new edition of Smith & Jones right here on Sportsnet 590. The fan, Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts as well. Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. We started our new season last week with a stack show, and we are stacked again this week, and we are going to jump right into it as we bring into the conversation the general manager of the Canadian senior men's national team and, of course, the bronze medalist at this past summer's World Cup, Rowan Barrett. Rowan, it's, uh, it's quite a story, and a lot of people are still uh, reveling in the success of this past summer as we highly anticipate what is to come uh, next summer. Uh, we had Dwight Powell on last week, and, and I said to Dwight, I had the same reaction as he did when they showed it on, on TV with, with tears in my eyes, and, and I know you must have felt some of that too uh, this summer, but I, I, I want to back up to the beginning, Rowan. You are a Canadian success story, uh, managing this team as a Canadian with, with uh, a lot of skin in the game, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, emotion in what's going on here because the last time Canada played in the Olympics, you were part of that. Where did this start for you as basically saying, you know what, I, I want to be a GM at one point? You know, interestingly, Steve Nash and I, after 2003, and we just came up short of uh, going back to the Olympics again. And uh, after the game, we were sitting and we were talking, and uh, we were thinking about, you know, the future. And what do we need to do to get back there? And what do we need to do to win? And at that time, we both kind of made a promise to each other that when we finished playing, that we would come back and do whatever we can to try to help our country, uh, you know, to, to get back amongst the world's elite. And, uh, and so that's kind of where the, the thought started, you know, uh, was when we were still both playing. Did... Steve has, he has a different course in his life. I mean, he's, he's such a uh, highly sought after popular guy with uh, all kinds of, dare I say, irons in the fire. And, and I'm sure you were the same way. And when Steve, you know, took on the NBA, the professional coaching started to lean toward those kinds of things and things weren't always the greatest you kind of hung in there, Rowan, and, and that's a, a testament to your determination. But um, was there ever a thought of, you know what, I'd like to help the country, but maybe somebody else needs to do this? No, I, no. I believed um, wholeheartedly in what we were, we were doing. And if I didn't believe that uh, we could achieve this, if I didn't believe that I was, the one to be in place that could help us to get there, I would have stepped aside. Uh, our country and its success is more important than me. Um, and, and it's always what was at the forefront of my mind. And because I, I could see so clearly what I thought we needed to do, um, I was uh, committed to that. And I remain committed to that. And it's taken us years. It's taken us years to grow our program to a point that we have enough now in the storehouse yeah. with experience um, that, can, that can perform at that level. And we have the coaching in place, obviously. 
uh, and it's taken, it took us some time to do that, but we, we've gotten to that. And yeah. so now we're, we're starting to see uh, what our country is capable of, and I'm proud of that. Yeah, no, Rowan, and I'm not telling tales out of schools here for all the people listening to the podcast. You've heard me say in board meetings as you, you know, along with Michael Bartlett, kind of map out what's ahead for the team and, you know, Denise doing it for the women's team. And you've heard me say this and I've said it publicly. I don't believe there's any country in the world, save one, that should be in front of us regularly. I I, I honestly believe that. And, you know, we kind of slayed the giant this this year this past year to, to get a to get a medal. So I I feel exactly like you do and, and I'm I'm glad that you are the guy that, you know, along with Michael Bartlett and everybody with Canada basketball sharing that vision to push this thing forward. But it almost it almost got derailed, Rowan, with you know, Nick and you and Nick and uh, you know, Michael Bartlett, you guys asked for that commitment after that crushing loss in Victoria. Oh my goodness. I was uh it's it's just it's like coming back from a long deficit and you get there and you tie it. And then the other team goes on an eight Oh run. And now you're running out of time. I just, I, I just felt like that in Victoria and you had to muscle up again. And now you have to change coaches because the guy who helped ask for that commitment and helped put some of it in place in Nick nurse uh, had to step down basically. And now you, it's, it's a little bit before the dance Rowan, and your shirt's dirty. Like, you know, you're ready to, you're ready to, to go to the party and, and you spill something on your shirt and you need a new coach. Walk us through what happened there and how we came up with Jordy Fernandez and, and it turned out so wonderfully for Canada. Well, I think once we started to see rumblings, uh, even during the season, the last NBA season with Nick and the Raptors, you know, right away, you know, the antennas were up. And, uh, and you know, just kind of speaking with Nick through the process and, what was happening and, you know, how were the discussions going to go with the team? And, uh, you know, at that point, we believed that it was important to prepare uh, a, a predecessor for him. And, and uh, he was open to that. We worked together. We looked at different names even together a little bit. Um, he was able to give me any feedback that he knew from the coaching uh, community on those. And I just went on a worldwide search. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked mm-hmm. at several names, kind of all over the globe, all manners of experience. Uh, and really, initially, the thought was, you know, let's bring potentially somebody in as an associate head coach. And uh, that as well, if Nick was able to continue coaching, then they would support Nick, you know, as an assistant. And uh, yeah. if for any reason Nick had to step aside, they would be able to elevate into that head coach. And so we spoke to a number of people and all during that time, Nick was pretty confident that he'd be able to coach the team. You know, it's why we didn't maybe make a move sooner. And, uh, you know, I was on top of it every week with him and we were talking and things were feeling good and speaking to Philly and things were feeling good. And then, uh, you know, once, you know, I get a call from him on, on a Monday and he says, Rowan, uh, you know, I can't believe this, but, you know, I've got to step down. And it wasn't the plan. It wasn't what either one of us hoped, um, but it was just the reality of the moment. And at yeah. that point, I was down to my final two candidates, one being Jordy. And right. so Nick stepped down on the Monday, 
and I believe we had our coach signed on the Friday. Yeah. And so we just moved forward. And, you know, a little bit of input from some of our players um, to hear, you know, some of the thoughts. And I think for me within this whole process, this is the most exciting thing was that our players, as much as they love Nick and Nick did great things for us, um, our players are committed to their country, you know, more than they yeah. are yeah. any one particular person. And the culture that we built uh, and what the players believed that they would be walking into, even with a change of coach, was uh, very, very strong. And these players were undaunted. And they said, okay, we got to change directions here. I'm still there. We're going to line up behind the new guy and let's go. You know, by the way, what's his name? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we had to, you know, just kind of yeah. really share it. And as much as Jordy has a great reputation in the NBA, I think the players showed that no matter what's coming through the gates here, I'm here and I'm ready and I want to represent my country here. And, and for me, that was the exciting thing um, as we went through. And, uh, you know, and, and to use your analogy about uh, going to the dance, going to the party, uh, you know, I think that our players had been to a number of parties with us, right? And they knew right. what it looked like, and we knew what they looked like. And so even if they were going to come in looking a little bit different that night, they were still going to have lots of fun, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah. and they were going to be accepted. And so because uh, they knew the environment they were coming into and they felt comfortable with that. And so obviously there were some questions from some of the players and question marks, and we tried to answer those as much as we could. Um, at the time, but uh, they were committed from the beginning, and we came in and we uh, and we ran uh, right from the beginning. Our guys were ready. Our coach came in, and uh, he was in control of the environment from the first day. And uh, you know, I think with players, it's really important not only what structure you're putting in and how you communicate with them and all that, but I think it's very important in the foxhole, you know, in the moment. Right with the with the clipboard, who are you in that moment when all the pressure is there and the fans are screaming? Right? Are you, are you able to keep your head about you? Are you able to put everybody in the right spot? Are you clear-headed? Are you still breathing breathing confident? You know who are you in that moment? And I thought going into those exhibitions, I thought the training camp was great, but then going into the actual uh, exhibition games. You know, in Germany, beating Germany, and in Spain, beating Spain. Uh, you know, he very clearly showed to them who he was in the fossil. And I think the confidence in what we were doing just kept growing from our players. And so uh, he, he jumped in and did a great job for us. I was going to ask how important it was to have an NBA guy with basically an NBA team on and kind of knowing what they're about and formerly having an NBA head coach. I mean, Jordy's an NBA coach, but Nick was an NBA head coach. Mm -hmm. And we know that move six inches from one chair to the next is, is mm -hmm. sometimes difficult. Mm -hmm. very, very difficult uh, for, for most. Um, I will say that uh, it is vital to have a coach in place that truly understands these players. Like, it doesn't matter how good your exes and O's are. 
if you cannot communicate with them or they perceive that you don't understand them, uh, you will lose all their confidence. And um, yeah. <clears throat> it won't matter. You know, in the fourth quarter, you know, are you going to dive on the floor, you know, to get that ball if you're already emotionally not invested because you don't feel respected or you don't feel like, you know, you, you know you're, you're, you're being given the right conditions to help you to be as successful as you can be, you know. And let's be very clear. You know, we have players on our team that are making millions of dollars a month. These NBA players, they don't go anywhere that they do not want to go. Right? Like, if you see an mm-hmm. NBA player somewhere, it's because he wants to be there. <laughs> uh, with no check, nobody's paying, it's because they want to be there. And so, uh, you know, they're donating their time and service to their country. And so the least that we can do is to try our best within the resources that we have to create an environment that somewhat resembles, um, you know, what they need in order to be able to perform um, when, they, when, they, when they come out. And so I think that that was vital within the coaching search. But secondly, we also wanted to make sure that we had, uh, you know, somebody that understood FIBA, truly understood it, because it is a different game. It's a completely different game. In the yeah. NBA, right? yeah. There's eight less yeah. minutes, there's different rules, it's much more physical, like it's just very different. There's things you're allowed in FIBA that you're not allowed, you can jump up and hit the ball off the basket, like all of these things. Things that are normally fouls in the NBA are not fouls in FIBA. Um, you know, the, the referees and how they ref, the, the, the fans and how they get involved and how to keep them out of the game, all of these dynamics as a coach you have to be managing. And so you need somebody that is steeped in that and understands that. It's one of the reasons why we hired Nick in the first place, because he had coached in the Olympics. He had coached overseas. He understood it. And so we, we, we wanted to continue in that vein. And we believe that Jordy uh, knew that very well. And, and obviously he had been with a championship team in Spain who's been living at the top of the polls one, two, or three for many years. And so he understood experientially what that needed to look like. And more recently, he had coached with Nigeria in the, in the Olympics. And so he had played in lead-up games, and in the Olympics, he had played against a number of these teams, some of whom have the same coaches and the same players. And so he was going to be very familiar with who we were going to play. And obviously, with Spain being uh, you know, one of the teams we believed we would have to go through, his knowledge of Spain, um, a top team, the number one team in the world, we believed also would be very helpful. And so, uh, you know, we went ahead and we, and then the last thing, uh, you know, what we heard was that he was really phenomenal uh, as it pertained to his uh, communication and relationships with players. And so, you know, when we had the technical part, the relationship part, the experience, the understanding, uh, you know, now it was going to be, you know, can you take that step? Right, like you know, six inches over, and uh, you know when you are the one answering all the questions, and the glare is on you. And from everything I'd heard, and from everything that he had uh, shown us in the interviewing process, uh, we believed that he was ready for this moment. And I believe a number of other teams in the NBA, as well as around the world, who were vying for his services, um, also thought that he could be ready to step forward. Uh, we we were just the ones that. Hold the trigger. 
Rowan, um, you just gave some unbelievable detail there, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, you know, Jonesy and I were just talking about this the other night from a from an NBA standpoint. Let's use the Toronto Raptors specifically as an example with a new coach and with a few new players, but more so the coach. It's it's a new system. It's it's a new style. It's a new voice. And we have said you got to give it till about the twenty game mark to really know what you are as a team, or give the players twenty games to figure out the coach and what he wants from his players and to figure out the system and et cetera, et cetera. But you don't have 20 games. You don't have a few months when you're talking about trying to make this coaching change that you were forced into doing. It was go time. And these players really had to kind of step up, let alone the coaches had to step up. Jordy and his staff had to step up. So there had to have been some kind of apprehension thinking, again, we don't have the time. It's, it's put up or shut up. So how much apprehension or even fear was there in going forward you know i just don't believe in entering into anything you know with fear um i think that especially as a leader i think that the people that you lead will feel that um and that somehow will reverberate you know across the the team across the department and so i I think that the moments for fear or apprehensions are are on the search you know, when you're trying to find and you're trying to make sure you're making the right choice. And uh, to do that, what do you do? You prepare as best you can. You make sure you understand uh, the environment as much as you can, your players as much as you can, what is needed and required as much as you can. And then you go out and you make your decision. And once we made the decision, I said, this is our guy, let's go. And at that point, it was just about supporting him supporting him, making sure he had everything he needed, believing that when we got into those moments, he was going to know what to do. And, um, and uh, that confidence and making sure that he knew that we had that confidence with him. I think also, uh, you know, having David Blatt on staff, I think is very helpful as well. Yes. Once again, somebody that's walked through this path, that's won medals in the Olympics, Right, that's one European championships. I mean, he'll be in the Hall of Fame one day. Tremendous coach. And to have him there beside the coach, also helping and supporting in the meetings and all the way up. You know, you heard how glowingly he spoke about him in his last interview um, after the U.S. game. Right, he called uh, David Blatt his angel. You know, and so um, with with all the team that we put together, with some of the systematic things we'd already been doing that we knew were good. Um, I, I felt very confident, uh, and to, to your point, we didn't have much time. Those five games were the time. Those exhibition yeah. games were the time to get it together so that when we get there, we can hit the ground running at the World Cup. And, and we had moments. We had some difficult moments. There were some moments some of our players struggled a little bit and, you know, trying to, trying to acclimate to, to some of the new things we were doing and, it took some time, and it took some challenging from the coach. You know what I mean? Like fully in control of the team and letting it be known in that locker room. Like, hey, guys, this is the way that we're going to win. And um, our guys bought in. To their credit, they bought in. And by the time we get to the tournament, uh, they know what they're supposed to do. We're ready to go. And so uh, while there you know, definitely would be concern, I think my concern was more once we lost Nick and trying to figure out who's going to replace. And during that time period, oh, yeah, very uncomfortable. It's not ideal. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, once we, 
made the decision, we felt very confident in the decision, and then we were ready to go. Rowan, I feel like one of those moments would have been um, against Brazil, kind of sailing along through the tournament. Uh, you know, people talking about Canada and, you know, they basically have an NBA team and how well they're playing and how good they look and you're sailing along and nothing is ever as easy as it looks and you hit a bump in the road against Brazil, a team that finished behind you in the Americas that you had beaten in that part of the competition and they jump up and bite you. And mm -hmm. now people are saying, and, and we, I heard it over here, oh my goodness, not again, like sailing mm -hmm. along, lose to Brazil and the next game against Spain of all people, is basically win or go home. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that had to be a that had to be a a, a watershed moment, a, a turning point for mm -hmm. everything that was to come. Especially, especially the way the game against Spain went, being down. And when you're down big in a FIBA game, it's not like an NBA game because <laughs> there aren't right. that mul there aren't the multiple possessions or the the pace and it's not the same. It's a shorter game. So walk us through that time when it when it happened, the, the loss to Brazil, and now you're going into play Spain and you're down double figures in the second half. So two things I'll share. One, uh, before I even address the game, is very interesting, right, in terms of what was being said in the world. You know me pretty well, Jonesy. I don't listen. No. During these times, like I just, <laughs> I tune it up. I need to be paying attention to like what's going on in my team. I need to be looking at the interactions with the coaches and the players. I need to be paying attention to technically what's happening on the floor. What's going on with these referees? You know, what do I got to talk to FIBA about? Like my focus is 100% there. And I believe that our team's focus was there as well. So that's one okay. thing that helps you in a moment like that is you're not getting carried away with what's being said. You're focusing on what's going on. You're in that bubble. So I think that's one thing to help you. I think the second thing is um, we had a mantra, okay? And our mantra was body blows, okay? And, and this is the reason why you saw Dylan Brooks with boxing gloves and, and all that. It's been, you know, our, our CEO gave us a bunch of boxing gloves, which was awesome. Um, but when he understood what our mantra was, it, because we didn't come into this thing thinking that we were some sort of conquering hero. We're number 15 in the world. We haven't won anything. We haven't done anything. We're number one in the world in qualification. These are good signs. These are good indications of where we're going. We're the number one offense in the world. Good indication. We still haven't done anything on the stage. And so we're not coming in here thinking, oh, we got these NBA players and we're going to win. Well, the USA had the NBA players too in the last World Cup. I think they finished fifth. And at the Olympics, they lost to France before eventually going on to win. And so nobody's, you know, infallible. Like, everybody can be beat. Yeah. And so there's this understanding that it's going to take body blows to win this thing. We're, we don't have the Mike Tyson, you know, one, one shot to the head to knock you out in the first round. It, it's going to be body blows. we got to hit you to the body, hit you to the body, hit you to the body. We might get knocked down. We get back up. We keep plowing you to the body. And eventually, your arms and your hands are going to come down. And when they come down, we got to hit the precision shot right between the eyes. 
And that's exactly what you saw happen in that in that game against Bay. Um, I think, you know, they, they had us down, right? We were on the mat. We got back up, and we kept slugging, and we made adjustments. And I think uh, the coach has to get tremendous credit here. We made some adjustments coming out of halftime. And the reason why we made those adjustments and knew is because we played against them in our preparation. So we knew that we could beat them, and we knew how to beat them. And at halftime, the coach made the adjustment, and you could see it. The game changed. The coach got a technical foul on the other side. Rudy Fernandez got a technical foul. They could feel it. The game changed. We were here. And they're a great team. They're a champion. They hit back, and we went back down again. But in the fourth quarter, once again, we put that adjustment in right down the stretch, and we were able to strangle them, you know what I mean, and come right back and, and hit them and hit them. And, and I think the, the key was, again, it's just being able to perform on demand in the moment. We had not only a coach with a system, but we had players that could perform in that moment, Right that could make the big shot, that could set up the right things that we needed, that could execute. And it was tremendous. And uh, watching our players put their egos aside, some guys not in the game that might have wanted to be in the game and said, look, whatever we need to win, let's go. Um, And and those kinds of things, I think, give the coach also uh, a tremendous win, you know, Uh, know, in his back knowing, you know, okay, I've made this decision. I've got all these guys with me. You know, I just got to put them in the right place. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, we took information from that Brazil loss and we made adjustments also from that Brazil loss in that Spain game. And so, uh, you know, I, I was really happy, obviously, with the result. And, and that result changes everything for us, right? We, we, we know what it's like to be on the other side of a, a shot that gets made at the end to put you out. Well, you know, Shea came up and made a huge shot uh, to put us, you know, to put us forward and put us in. And so uh, it was great full team effort. And, um, and I also think it showed the control that Jordy had of the team is they trusted the coach in that moment. And uh, we were able to get it done. Rowan, last one for me. Uh, and you were just kind of touching on this a little bit when you were discussing NBA players, you know, NBA players aren't necessarily the be-all, end-all. You can lose with NBA players, too, as you were just talking about with the U.S. team and whatnot. With all that said, though, there are NBA players, Canadian NBA players, that wanted to be a part of this current team, whether it was they were injured and they couldn't take part, whether it was other commitments that they had in their lives, whatever it may be. Some of them even actually were still around the team and were a part of your camps even though they weren't going to be on the team. But you also had talked about previously, you and Nick Nurse, about a three-year commitment from certain players and, and from every player, I guess I should say. So how open are you now to other guys potentially joining the team? How stringent is that three years? Or is there an opportunity or a window open for new guys to be coming in, joining this team for next summer and maybe helping, hopefully helping you medal at the Olympic Games? Well, first thing I want to say is that I think that I long saw a time and envisioned a time, and we put the programming in place with the Junior Academy and putting money, you know, with 7th and 8th graders and putting monies into, more monies into our U16, 17, 18, 
you know, and, and, and helping all of these players to grow because we were going to need to be in a position so that if one player or two players couldn't be available that summer, we still had enough within our player pool to put together a competitive team. And I think that we've had a pretty strong pool for a few years now. Um, but, but what we currently have is we have a strong group of players, but we also have players in their prime. You know, Dylan Brooks is right in his prime at 27 years old, for example. You know, so you have experience. You're not going into FIBA tournaments generally with, you know, an average age in your starting lineup of 22 and winning anything. Like the, the, the experience is generally not there um, to do it. And the history shows you that that just doesn't usually happen. So it's challenging to do that. And so we finally do have, we are in a place that we, and we saw it this summer, that while we were missing some players, we were still able to go in and compete at a very, very high level. Um, and so I think that's one very important to understand that within the guys we already have, as well as guys that are committed to the program, that are still there, could still have that opportunity next year, depending on where we go and injuries and all those kinds of things. We'll see. I think, secondly, uh, it's important to, you know, understand that, you know, performing in the moment is very, very important. Like, you can be good players and you can have big names, but when I look at that final game and I see three players give us 90-plus points against the, the world, current world number one, uh, to me, you cannot ignore that. So those things tell you something. Like when I look at the, 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 the you know, all of our team was good, and everybody had moments where they contributed and did things. But when I look at Shea and I look at Dylan and I look at RJ and I look at, like, what happened in the – in the quarterfinal, you know, the, 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 you know, and the, the semifinal and then the, you know, and then the, the bronze medal game, the level of performance was very, very high. I mean, world leading high. Right. And so, uh, you know, that also tells me that we have players with, and Kelly had moments where he took over games, you know, Phil Scrub had moments where he came into a game and just completely changed the game for us and helped the game end up being a blowout. Lugans Dort had moments where he just completely locked and shut the door down. I mean, I watched uh, this guy, Luka Doncic, who's an amazing player, amazing player. I watched us frustrate him. Dylan came in, and then he did tag team. You know, he touched Lugans, touched his hand. Lugans came in, right, <laughs> and, and jumped the guy, you know? And, and eventually, he's so frustrated, he, he gets thrown out of the game. And so... I'm seeing all those performances, and with a tweak here, a tweak there, there's nothing that we should be thinking that we cannot perform with what we have. Okay. Now, that being said, um, we are committed to our players. Our players are committed to us. And uh, I think that we're going to watch this NBA season, and we're going to see how this season goes. Um Everything can happen. Injuries can happen. There can be problems. I think it's premature at this moment to say, you know, who would we add? What are we adding? 
I think it's premature. You know, I think we wait and we see how the season goes. I, I think, uh, you know, somebody like Jamal Murray, for example, um, who has delivered on his commitment, right? We said, look, if you can't be there for the whole summer, you know, we need you to be there. Come to camp, right? See what's going on. Work with the coach. Liaise with the players. Let's do that. He did that. And so he's very much still within our commitment. Uh, but again, you know, let's see. Let's see how the season goes. Let's, let's see what happens. Um, um, now, there are other players that uh, maybe were in college or high school when we first asked for this commitment. You know, that's a little bit different for them, right? We didn't really have a chance to to commit to this, right? They just couldn't, right, with the NBA draft coming for them and all these kinds of things, um, but have been in our program, you know? And so we'll see, you know, how that goes. And then, obviously, there are players that just chose not to be a part of it for the past three years. And so, you know, I think and that's where probably the most touchiest uh, case that you potentially yeah. have if, if you ever had to add somebody. And I think uh, within that, those are decisions, again, you got to look and say, where are we with injuries? Where are we with the guys that we've had? You know, are there any differences or configurations that impact our, our, our group? And, and if you have to make any kind of changes, those discussions happen within the coaching staff and within our players on our teams. And, um, and I think, you know, you can have subtraction by addition. And so you have to be very, very careful about how you add in, even with players that are committed and have been committed, you have to be very careful about how you start adding into the team because it can and will change dynamics. And uh, when we finally have gotten the right formula to have some success with, uh, you know, we are not, uh, you know, in, in the business of running around looking to just change up our team. You know, in 20-plus years, we finally have a team that's succeeding. Like, let's give these guys some respect. Let's be thankful that they've come to play. Let's be, let's be happy that we found a coach and we found a system and a culture that's working. And, you know, if there's a tweak here or there that we need to make, that will present itself as the season goes on. You know, the NBA season goes on. And, uh, and I'll, re- I'll reserve my full answer for that question, I think, uh, maybe a little bit later, several months from now. Well, we're all looking forward to it, Rowan. We, we really are. Yeah. Thanks for your time here today, man. That's- that was the general manager of the Canadian senior men's national team, Rowan Barrett. When we come back, we will be joined by an old friend of the show and the city, Dwayne Casey, up next on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Again, make sure you are subscribed to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise, download, subscribe, rate, and review. And we did say last week, Jonesy, that we were going to have a special surprise for people this week, but circumstances prevented that from happening. We could get into the whole story, but you know there were a bunch of things at play. But let's just say that hopefully, fingers crossed, starting next week, um, you'll be able to not just hear the podcast, but you might be able to see the podcast as well. So we'll leave it at that and hope everything that works out in week number three of Smith & Jones. But we roll on with episode number two of the 23-24 season. We bring into the conversation, as I said before the break, an old friend of the show, 
and still a member of the Pistons front office and now broadcaster as well, Dwayne Casey. Dwayne, always great to catch up with you. And uh, you've you stepped out of the limelight as a coach, but never away from the game. Uh, you're 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 a lifer. So, I mean, the first question is what what's a day entail for Dwayne Casey now? What what are your duties as a front office person uh, with the Pistons? Well, well, one, uh, Eric. I mean, Jonesy and Eric. Uh, I'm doing uh, a lot of scouting as far as college basketball around the states and some in Europe going to be going to Europe to see some prospects there and also potential trade guys going to different NBA games around the league and so kind of involved in all all three of those phases of of personnel and then also doing the pregame and and uh, postgame shows with with the team when I'm in town and which has been fun talking basketball talking hoops I I try I I don't talk about the Pistons as far as evaluating what they're doing and not doing since I was just there recently. So I try not to to even mention how they played or what they're doing or how they're doing. So uh, that but it's been fun just you know still like you said Jonesy being around the game being a lifer uh, still being involved and you know still I miss coaching I, I you know go to these practices in college and. Matter of fact, I was down in Vanderbilt at Vanderbilt Jerry Stackhouse's practice, and he he was he runs a tight show. So, in in really enjoyed watching his team practice down there, and and really gives you the itch when you get around a guy like that. Dwayne, have you enjoyed it so far? Being on the the other side of things again, I know you're still involved in the scouting and, and the day to day from that standpoint, but it sounds like you got a lot of irons in the fire, which is certainly a lot different than the everyday coaching. Are you? finding enjoyment in this sort of different phase or stage of things? Yes, I enjoy it, Eric. It's one of those things you enjoy in different, in different areas. I enjoy still being around it. I enjoy uh, evaluating and, and, you know, seeing potential players, potential trade prospects, and, and uh, you know, evaluating colleges. But, you know, you miss the coaching. You miss the challenge. You miss the preparation. You miss the everyday camaraderie with the players and, and practice and and uh you know coaching and teaching all those areas you you miss mainly the camaraderie and relationships because when you're out scouting and 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 uh, evaluating you're by yourself most of the time i think troy and i our general manager we went to chicago uh the other night to see the chicago championship classic so that's kind of been the only time i've i've had someone with me so you it's lonesome you know you know you're not around your teammates or your fellow coaches from that standpoint, but uh, uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's a different challenge. And it's another, you know, I'm learning and I've always loved learning a different phase of basketball. And this is definitely a different phase of, of approaching the NBA game. Case coaching gets into somebody's blood and, and I haven't, I haven't coached in, uh, you know, at a, at a high level since, you know, like 1987. But it's still in the blood. You still watch the game as a coach. You still have Mm -hmm. analytical thoughts or what would I do or I understand why this was done. A a lot of people find that when you step back from that and take on a position like yours and you look at the game broader, has it impacted your philosophy in any way? And, And because you love the game, 
I'm never going to say that coaching is never a possibility for you, whether it be at the yeah. NBA level or, or you know, yeah. it, it, at, at the University of Kentucky or somewhere else. I mean, should a job come up, has, yeah. has there been an impact on your philosophy in a sense, Dwayne, being able to step back? Would you, would you do things differently if you started to drive the car again? Well, uh, you, that's a that's a great question, Jonesy. Because you know you do look at things differently. I I I'm stealing from a lot of the college coaches, uh, John Shire. I was down at Duke for a couple of days watching them practice, and and you know you steal drills, you steal ideals, you steal terminologies, you steal some techniques. Uh, but you know one thing that I would get back to that I think I got away from as a coach when you're rebuilding is, you know, you're manufacturing ways to score. You know, I think I got I got away from my defense-first uh, mentality, just seeing the game change and trying to keep up with that. But a lot of that was due with personnel, young guys trying to score in the league, trying to help them. So you kind of – but, you know, if, if anything, I would get back to more of the defense-first uh, philosophy, also with an eye on scoring because the game is changing. Uh, it, it's a, uh, I call it an arms race is, uh, of uh, trying to score in today's game. You've got to be able to score. You've got to have, you know, kind of get your scoring around your personnel. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, you do have to win with defense, and that's, that's a difficult thing to do. And that's why I'm looking at Boston. They're in top, top five, I think, in both offense and defense, and that's when you can start talking about championships when you have that combination. And we had that in – in Toronto uh, back when I was there that we were in the top top 10 in offense and defense and and then you have a chance when you do that but uh, that's one thing that I do see myself you know uh, getting closer back to uh, is a defensive mindset that uh, uh, that I, I kind of got away from when we started rebuilding here in Detroit. Hey, Dwayne, you've forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. Um, but but I want to ask you this, just on piggybacking on what you just said. Looking even at current-day Raptors, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily asking you to analyze the Raptors specifically. Right. I'm just using them as an example. Going into Wednesday's right. game against Milwaukee, now, again, they got blown out by the Bucks on Wednesday. But going into that game, Toronto was in the top ten, even top five, but top ten in almost every single defensive category statistic that you could possibly think of. Raptors were top ten, top ten, top ten. But if we flip the coin and talk about their offense, bottom ten, even bottom five in a lot of them, and their offense has struggled mightily, especially, Dwayne, in today's game with the three-point shot. It seems like if you aren't a good three-point shooting team, you're really behind the eight ball. So how is a coach, to the point you were just making maybe, how do you kind of find that balance then of, we're really good at one thing, but we're not so good at the other. And to the words you just said, we've got to be really good at both if we think we're going to be right. any good in the long run. Eric, that's a great point. And, and you know, that's the hardest thing to do is to get that balance. And that's one, one area where we, we were lucky enough back we were at the top of the conference of having both of those areas covered. A lot of that is personnel. A lot of that is emphasizing uh, efficiency and pace. A lot of that goes into the analytical uh, fixture of, of the NBA of how you analyze offense is how fast you play, how fast you get the ball up the floor. And like you said, uh, three point shooting, you know, shot quality, uh, you know, you can shoot a lot of mid range shots and we, we kind of beat those odds when we had DeMar there. And the fact that he was a, such a great mid range shooter 
that it, it kind of did away with some of the, the anti-mid-range shot uh, people. But uh, he was also getting to the free throw line, getting three the old-fashioned way. So uh, a lot of that is, is your efficiency, uh, shot selection, st- stand as much away from the mid-range shots unless you shoot in a historical high percentage. And, again, uh, personnel three, with three-point shooting. Uh, like, you you know, we had Patrick Patterson was shooting at a high clip. Uh, C.J. Miles, we had some guys that, you know, Kyle was shooting pretty well from the three at the time. So we were able to do that. So some of that is personnel driven. Some of that is style of pay, play, pace of play, and making sure uh, you're staying within the uh, shot spectrum and uh, uh, getting the high percentage, high efficiency shots. And, uh, you know, some teams, you know, are are – caught with the personnel that are really good at mid-range shots and and uh, you know you have to you know my thing is too if you don't have three-point shooting you have to keep the scoreboard moving and uh, that's something I think a lot of teams are caught in the middle right now uh, you know trying to keep the scoreboard moving and you know again I applaud uh, the uh, the Raptors they do a great job defensively I think they're finding their way Coach is doing a heck of a job of trying to find that identity on the offensive end. You know, you you know, a different system, a different terminology, different different play calls, play sets. Uh, that takes a little while, but grinding in and 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 tightening up your belt on the defensive end, uh, that's kind of disguised in hard work, and they're doing a great job of that. And they have great athletes, length, size, uh, and a, and a defensive mentality built in. And you know, you got three guys there. Uh, that was on the championship team, so they know what championship basketball looks like, especially on the defensive end. Dwayne, it's funny because, you know, you say that, and, you know, I hate to sound like the old man, but, you know, the old man, you know, get off my lawn and and back in the day and all of those phrases. But, Uh uh, you know, and and Eric and I had, and I reference it all the time, a fabulous conversation with with Coach Steve Clifford, who is – of that vintage, the same, you know, vintage as you were when you looked at the game, when I look at the the tree that Cliff came from. And the Raptors are terrific defensively. And, and, you know, Coach Ryakovich is using some of, not just the lazy switches, they're actually defending pick and rolls in some of the old, you know, traditional ways and keeping good defensive players on good offensive players. But the way the NBA and just the society at large when it comes to basketball has devalued defense, can you, can you find a way even with your defense, Dwayne, as you say, how do you find a way with your defense to, and I love the, ta- love the phrase, keep the scoreboard moving, score enough, mm-hmm. like when you play yeah. a Golden State or a Denver, have your offense keep you in the game because you've got to score to keep up. Yeah, yeah. And again, and and I, you know, it pains me, Jonesy and Eric, to, to say it. It pains me because, again, we won a championship in Dallas and I was in charge of the defense and uh, I, I slept. I ate defense. I, I talked about it all the time. I was trying to come up with every different drill, every different idea imaginable uh, on the defensive end. But even since then, the game has changed so much. Uh, you know, you've got to be able to score in today's game or, or at least keep the scoreboard moving. Uh, and you and some of the best defense, the guys are so skilled with the skilled coaches. I mean, uh, Tatum, a young man like Jason Tatum, 
I don't know other than committing to to him and trapping him and getting the ball out of his hands. And even that, he'll find a way to pick you apart with the pass. Guys are so skilled, it's hard to stop people. I mean, it, you know, mm-hmm. you look at, like, like Eric was saying, you know, Toronto's in the top uh, categories, a lot of defensive categories, uh, top areas. But still, it's, it's hard to stop teams from scoring in today's game. And sometimes you have to use your offense as your defense. You may have to slow it down or may have to, you know, uh, go tit for tat for uh, with three-point shooting, getting to the rim, getting fouled, get to the free throw line. Uh, you know, though you you know whatever you have to do in today's game, you have to have an offensive philosophy that kind of balances that, balancing out balances out your defense. Just because uh, you guys are so skilled, the top teams, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, it's even harder for a younger team like we had here in Detroit. We were trying to manufacture ways to score because guys, you know, had trouble scoring against some of the elite defenses as a young team. But uh, so you spent, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out ways. But um, uh, you, you want to build your foundation, and I think Coach is doing it right. Build your foundation on your, your defense. But now as you go along, you have to manufacture points. You have to – figure out ways, what guys can do, what they can't do, how we can keep the scoreboard moving uh, to, to kind of balance it out. Because you can be great at, you know, at, in defense, but uh, at the end of the day, in today's game, you have to be able to score. And, and all the rules, uh, and I was on the competition committee, and all the rules today favor the offense. Uh, it's entertaining. The fans want to see it. And as you said, uh, Jonesy, from a coaching standpoint, you hate it. But that's the way that the NBA game is today. It favors the offense. Mm. Hey, Dwayne, when we're talking about today's NBA game, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit, but still stay on the topic of coaching. And, and Jonesy, this is something that you and I haven't even really had a chance to discuss yet this season. You maybe, I'm well, not maybe. I'm sure you're going to want to weigh in on it as well. I saw a post today, Dwayne, and this is something that you and I, the three of us, have discussed many times in the past. Um, black head coaches in the NBA, including Mm -hmm. executives as well, black presidents and coaches, there are now currently just shy of half, 14 Mm -hmm. coaches in the NBA, three presidents, and one CEO. Mm -hmm. Considering where we were as a society, let alone as a league, just a few Mm -hmm. short years ago, let alone 10, 20, 30 years ago, Dwayne, how important is that for you in terms of the path that you helped blaze and seeing where it now stands and hopefully where it can go even more in terms of even more diversity as we continue on into the next generation. That, that is, is such a beautiful statement, and, and it's music, I know, to my ears, and I'm sure it is to Jonesy's too, because it was mm-hmm. only a few years ago, uh, you know, we were really, you know, we still do uh, revere, you know, Wayne Embry. He was the only general manager at that time, I think it was the first general manager, African-American general manager, to come through. And you, you never saw anything like that as a young player and as a young coach. You never saw anyone like Wayne Emery. But now there's a lot of different you know, phases of that, of African-Americans, people of color, people of other nationalities, uh, you know, that are in our league. And I think you know, Adam has done a great job of pushing diversity, whether it's African-American uh, brown people, you know, Asian, whatever, European, whatever it is, women uh, in our league. And I think it's beautiful. I have a daughter, 
Jonesy has a daughter. Eric, you have a, a young son. And, and, again, we all want the best for our kids. And to see those roads being paid for our kids, for the young players today, for the young coaches today, is great to see. And, and uh, I, I've always been proud of, of trying to represent uh, young African-American coaches, uh, trying to build things, you know, winning the championship at Dallas, being a head coach at three different organizations, which is very difficult to do for African-American coaches, uh, is something that I I take pride in. And hopefully I left places better than I found them. And uh, that way, when they do look at African-American coaches, African-American general managers, uh, you know, you have a man like Masai there uh, of Nigerian descent as as a president, general manager, see, uh, head of the whole shebang. You know, it's beautiful to see. So in our league, I think it represents if you get the job done, if you're doing a good job, you will get the opportunities. Now, there's always going to be outliers and always situations where it doesn't match or you can't figure it out. But uh, eight out of ten, nine out of ten times in the NBA, Adam and the, and the owners and, and the people in in the league office have done a good job of making – it is closer to a level playing field as you possibly can make it. Uh, Dwayne, and I wanted to tag that and follow up. When you stepped away after Mm -hmm. kind of laying the foundation in Detroit, I think it was important for you guys to keep it going. And you went and got a guy who, you know, was a guy who coached in the finals, and it looked like he was saying, you know what, I'm ready to step back and take a break. And all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. Monty Williams is back coaching. He's... He's back mm-hmm. with a young team, kind of following in, you know, the footsteps that you've, you know, kind of mm-hmm. laid out and the vision that you had. And, and he's, he's, a, he's a black man working with, you know, young African-American talent. How important was it for you people in Detroit to have that continuity, that, that you know, that a guy like Monty follow you in with, with Cade and, and, and all of the, the young men, Jalen, and all those guys going forward, because it looked like Monty was ready to sit back and collect his money, and you guys said, no, 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 we, we need you to do this, and he responded. He sure did, and I, and I, I give that to our owner, Tom Gores, and, and also with uh, Troy Weaver, uh, recruiting him hard because he had, had every incentive in the world to be with his family. He's been through so much on a personal basis that, you know, he probably deserved to take some time off. But luckily and thankfully, we had an opportunity to recruit him here, to get him here. Tom Gores uh, put out the resources to get money, to have him here. Uh, Again, we're still in the rebuilding phase, and he's a a younger version. I think of of myself uh, when I was in Toronto at the early stages. And so to have him at the helm, our players are lucky that they do have a man of character, a man of uh, uh, that looks like them, that talks like them, that is a great teacher, motivator, father. Uh, and, and, again, uh, he's a perfect example of what we needed uh, for our young African-Americans. Our, you know, our team is majority African-American, which most teams in the NBA are. But, uh, you know, again, y- y- when you're in that seat, you really don't see color. But you do represent uh, a area of uh, a segment of, of the population that uh, that looks like you, and, and it's important that you have that. And it's not the only criteria. Uh, I would say that you still have to get the job done, no matter what uh, gender, what 
nationality, what color you are. You still have to get the job done. But I think we have one of the best in the league uh, when we're able to get Monty Williams as our head coach. Dwayne, we always appreciate the time. And, hey, now that you're a member of the media, we're going to be bugging even more because, you know, you're, you're one of us now. So, we'll, you know, you might be a regular here or something, Dwayne. <laughs> anytime, but if for you two, anytime, I've got one foot. I'm kind of dangling on one side and one side of the other yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as, you know, being in the media. But I, I enjoy – most of all, I enjoy talking to you two guys because, again, it, it's one it's one thing to talk to, to some media people that – that know the game and some that don't. You two guys have been around it long enough. You know the game. Jonesy, like you, you've coached. Eric, you've been around it your entire life. Uh, so you two guys know the game, and I know that through working with you. So it's easy for me to talk to you at any time. Well, Thanks Case, very much, Dwayne. You, Case, you wait till Eric starts to W – TV pretty boy, then you're in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> now that is really the dark side when you start doing that. That's the real dark side. <sighs> that was former Raptors head coach, former Pistons head coach, and still a member of the Pistons organization, Dwayne Casey and Jonesy. Before we end here, I want to give you that list quickly that I was just talking yeah. about. Uh, I don't know if you saw this posting as well, but 14 of the 20, or excuse me, of the of the 30 coaches, just shy of half. Uh, and three presidents, one CEO. But of the 14 coaches, Chauncey Billups, Joe Mazzula, Mike Brown, Jason Kidd, Tyrone Liu, Darvin Ham, Ime Udoka, Willie Green, Wes Unsell Jr., Jamal Mosley, uh, Monty Williams, J.B. Bickerstaff, Adrian Griffin, and Jacques Vaughn. Man, it's come a long way, as I said to you and Dwayne, in a very short time. It has. And, look, the NBA has always been known for its – uh, openness, its its progressive nature, uh, with so many of the participants, so many of the membership, the players being African American, it 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 makes sense to have that kind of representation, uh, you know. And I, I look at what's going on in the National Football League and and Division One football, and uh, the 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 tide needs to turn there. That there needs to be a bit more of a balance, and I think the NBA and its progressive nature has really done a good job of striking that balance and doing more to bring in even some of the other underrepresented communities, you know, in in terms of uh, its females into the the coaching staff and front offices and things like that. So tip of the hat to the NBA. Thanks again to Dwayne Casey for joining us on the show this week and also Rowan Barrett. Thanks to producers Mark Boffo and Austin Mackey. For Paul Jones, I'm Eric Smith. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Smith and Jones.